This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. This week, we got the man, Dave. CEO of IPT Well Solutions. He's just sitting here telling me about all of his uh, ski trips that he's been taking this year. And he's got me super jealous. I'm uh, probably about to lose his podcast and go hit up Montana <laughs> after this. But Dave, how are you doing? Yeah, doing great. Yeah, I just got back from Denver last night. And uh, you know, I, I, I walked out uh, Thursday morning and it, they had like uh, 12 inches of snow on my truck. <laughs> so there's a little, I, I sent that around to all my friends in Houston, a little bit different commute this morning than you guys are having. Yeah, and then yeah. you come to Houston, it's a chilly 60 degrees today. Yeah. Everyone's got their jackets on. And yeah. so, <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit different. A little bit the, different, uh, yeah. About, about climate uh, tolerance here uh, to cold weather. But uh, so tell me what IPT Wall Solutions is real quick at a high level and what the company does. Sure. So we're a f- full service uh, consulting company. We've got 60 plus professionals that work at IPT. You know, IPT has been around for 30 years. Um, we've drilled over 6,000 oil and gas wells you know, in, in some form or fashion from a drilling uh, perspective or from a completion fracking perspective. Uh, we've, we've drilled over 300 disposal wells, also both industrial um, type applications and also E&P type applications. Uh, we've we've worked for over 400 uh, customers as well. So I'm a newbie there. I've been there for about eight months. Okay. Yeah. So um, I'm CEO of uh, IPT, uh, but uh, we've got managing directors and we've got all sorts of professionals from a reservoir perspective, geological perspective, drilling completion. So it's it's a fun place to be. Gotcha. So. IPT is a engineering consulting firm that helps upstream oil and gas companies and other engines drill complete wells. Sounds yep. like awesome. Absolutely. So we do it from, you know, so it's kind of a cradle to grave perspective. Um, you know, we start with a geological investigation. Uh, we have reservoir characterization simulations. You know, we've got all sorts of software that we can, we can use to uh, analyze the reservoir. Um, and then we get into the drilling engineering execution part and then the completion frack uh, engineering part and then the execution of that. And we've now brought on facilities uh, engineering as well. Um, we do compliance and permitting when, when it's needed for customers. And then, you know, at the end of the day, we, we also P&A wells. So, yeah, yeah. So yeah to, 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 return, to return the, the well back to the original state, you know, the, the land. So, so I've been from seismic to everything P&A. from right, and so I've been brought in. You know, so IPT has has been kind of a Denver focused company. Sure, we've we've they've drilled wells in other parts of the United States, but the, a lot of the wells that that they have drilled in the past have been in the Rockies. And so I was brought in uh, in uh, June of last year to expand the ge- geographic fo- footprint. I've got you know a lot of Houston-based contacts. Uh, spent a lot of time international as well, um, and then also ex- uh, put uh, another uh, portfolio part of the the uh, the industry, which is environmental. 
And really, environmental today is a is a big facet, you know, of the E&P world and also the industrial world. So we're expanding into you know carbon capture and storage. We're expanding into uh, um, the the whole monitoring, reporting, verification part of of that of of injecting CO two underground, and then methane emissions, uh, the whole certification around that, and then the ESG part. Yeah. yeah. What about uh, <clears throat> geothermal? Are y'all moving into geothermal as well? Is it starting to get a little bit of traction? Sure. So, you know, geothermal has been around for a long time, but conventional geothermal is usually in, in bottom hole temperatures in excess of 400 degrees. So, you know, for example, I was involved in a lot of mighty river projects over in New Zealand. Um, but geothermal has not been really a big mainstay in the United States, mainly because, you know, the rock, the bottom of temperature uh, rock is, is cooler. Yeah. And so enhanced geothermal takes a different approach. Um, it takes, uh, uh, that uses a different fluid uh, in the turbines so that the boiling point is lower. So you can have lower temperature uh, bottom hole pressures. But, you know, we can use the whole extended reach thought process to create like enormous radiators underground so that the, the time that the fluid enters the, the well space to the time that the, the fluid exits the well space is sufficient enough to raise the temperature in the, maybe the three, anywhere from 250 to 350 range. Yeah. And that, that is certainly um, right in the wheelhouse of enhanced geothermal yeah i find uh geothermal just be interesting right now because like you said it's been around for a long time but now you have a bunch of oil and gas folks yeah that are really good at doing wells going over to geothermal and applying yeah. some of the things that you learned in the oil and gas industry over there so yeah we've done some some thermal heat maps in colorado and and, and wyoming for our clients um, we've also been involved in a in a research study project where you took a five mile lateral it's basically a big horseshoe, and then we then we drill vertical wells uh, to intersect that horseshoe. And so the horseshoe is the radiator, and the vertical well is just to take the fluid in and out. It's that's crazy what of, we could do. It's kind of a cool project. Yeah, no, yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, I remember Shell. I think it was like two years ago. Came out with a horseshoe lateral that they were drilling an oil and gas well, and I remember seeing that for the first time. I was like, it's just crazy what we can do couple miles underground you know i started drilling wells in 2010 back then we're still drilling mainly uh vertical conventional wells 11,000 feet and just yeah. to see in a decade um what we're able to do and how fast we're able to drill these wells as well it's uh it's just a kind of a modern model from an engineering perspective yeah i was involved in an extended reach project in the Sockland island and that was an Exxon project. And, you know, they, these guys were drilling 37,000 foot uh, lateral wells just and, and then hit a box that's 150 feet in diameter. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's so a, so that's to put that in perspective, you drill a well in downtown Houston and you hit a box in Sharpstown. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of cool. Yeah, it you know? is. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually some content that we should make. We should start overlaying laterals over like maps of maps Houston. Maps of Houston. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. So tell me a little bit, what's your background? You know, tell me a little bit about your story. Um, sounds like you've been at IPT for eight months now. Yeah, eight months. And, uh, so tell me, tell me about before then. 
Yeah, I'll, you know, my story can be a long story or a short story, so I'll, I'll make it a short story. But I started in the you don't North. Need even a lot. We got some time. <laughs> I started in the North Sea uh, back in the in the eighties. Oh, so wow. I worked for a company called Sedco. Yep. And uh, for those guys uh, that uh, remember politics, uh, Governor uh, Clements was the uh, owner of Sedco way way back in the seventies and eighties. Um. And, uh, and so I started on a, tr a training program and went through that training program in the North Sea and decided that, you know, my career track was supposed to be staff engineering and so forth. Uh, I really liked the drilling side of it. So I convinced the folks after the, the drilling or the training program to go uh, as an assistant driller and then driller. So I spent some time overseas. It was, it was a bargain, right? I had to negotiate this thing. So I spent some time in South Korea on the construction of a floater, uh, semi-submersible, and then I came out as an assistant driller and then driller on that on that rig. And after four years- you On know, that rig that you constructed? Yeah, constructed. That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, I was a little nervous, but- Yeah, <laughs> yeah. like I built this thing. Yeah, I built this thing, <laughs> hope, it, hope it's okay. Um, but after four years, you know, uh, the, the management said, look, Dave, we didn't hire you to be a, a driller in, in, on a semi-submersible. So uh, I, I came to Dallas and uh, started the whole staff engineering but that's right when Sedco was was being uh, was being purchased by Schlumberger. Okay. And so my new boss was in Singapore, and he said, "Look, I don't need you in in Dallas." And so he did me the favor of promote, promoting me after six months to a district manager. <laughs> so I, I started my uh, international again in Doha, Qatar. Okay. And then. Uh, you know, that was in the mid 80s. And if you remember that mid 80s, or if you've heard about the mid 80s, it was a pretty volatile period of time. Yeah. And so we did a lot of startups and I was one of the few single guys as a district manager. So uh, I spent four years in a, uh, living out of a suitcase. Yeah. So, so I said so they, they probably sent you all around the world. They did. I went to <laughs> Dubai. I went to uh, the uh, East Coast of Africa. Uh, I went over to India, uh, China, uh, and then finally Australia. And That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it was kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. And so that was all was Schlumberger at that. That point? was yeah. It be, it became Sedco Forex. Okay. And and now that's I guess Transocean. I think. Oh, okay. I think that's yeah. what that how that works out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's good to get some of that. Uh, yeah. That evolution of company history to see you know, who's uh, kind of turned into who. Uh, so winding it back when. I come from the drilling site too, sure. so I like asking questions yeah. and people's drilling stories. But uh, so you build this rig in South Korea, then you go uh, work on an assistant driller, and then driller was that rig working out of Korea or no? It was, it was it, we took it to the North Sea. Okay, so it was just north of Bergen, yeah, and the close to the Arctic Circle. So I want to dive into the uh, questions about the North Sea because you know I've worked deep water, but yeah. it's Gulf of Mexico, and so a lot calmer waters. Sure, and, uh, not not as harsh, but I've worked on the North Slope, so you know I got a taste of a negative sixty degrees Fahrenheit, but I was always really. Uh, intrigued by the North Sea and wanted to go there. So what was it like working, one, in the North Sea and then two, offshore back in the 80s? You know, you have someone like me, I've worked offshore 2010s, probably a much different experience than... Yeah, than we had more guys in each room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, was, that was one big difference. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it just the North Sea is a pretty hostile place. 
a uh, lot of lot of wind, a lot of waves. Um, I think the first or second tour that I was there, uh, I was doing some night watch, and that was the night that the Alexander Cleland, you know, broke apart and yeah. uh, flipped over. And I, I was, I heard the SOS call at like two thirty, three o'clock in the morning. Wow. And uh, mayday, mayday, mayday. And that's when the rig, you know, flipped over. There's 126, 29 people that, that perished in that, you know, bless them. Yeah. That, but, uh, you imagine know, imagine being out there. Imagine being out there uh, in that. Uh, it's pretty, pretty I mean, crazy. That's one thing, you know, my, it, it, it's funny. You go on TikTok and there's this huge oil field community on TikTok now. And a lot of people take videos mm -hmm. of working offshore. And so it's great because like people like my wife, who, you know, they've never been offshore, but they've heard me talk about it. Yeah. You're out there and you're just, it seems like you're alone. Like there's nothing around you, you know, it's just pitch black. And, you know, every time I'd be on an offshore rig, you know, I think about uh, the guys on, you know, Deep Horizon. And, yeah. And it's like, that's. Yeah, I've never seen that movie and I never be, will. So that's, that's be, too close to home. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be a just terrifying position to be in it. Even, you know, for you on Nightwatch and hearing SOS, they didn't call. I mean, that's got to mm -hmm. chills down your bones when you experience that. So yeah. the offshore world is fascinating. I think it's a fascinating marvel of human ingenuity and engineering. I wish everyone could go to a deep water drill ship and see that you just, oh, 40, yeah, 40,000 foot wells off of a boat. I mean, it's pretty, yeah, uh, and pretty mind boggling. And that really propelled me in, into my next uh, part of my career. Um, you know, I left Setco Forex and uh, started with a couple guys, actually Exxon, retired Exxon guys, and started uh, Triton Engineering. And I think I was employee number two. <laughs> and, uh, and that was a, a fantastic uh, part of my career where, you know, we evolved in a consulting company, much like IPT today, but we also uh, started a turnkey company that drilled over 400 wells in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, jack-up type wells and also floater wells, uh, some 52 land-based wells along the Gulf Coast. Uh, we did 32 international wells. So, so it, when you say it was a fascinating turnkey these oil and gas companies would come to you guys and say, hey, um, you know, however you come up with a budget uh, for that, but they'd pay you to handle the drilling completions. Of that right. We, we would do, we would spud the well, we would, we would draw all the way through to um, the TD, and then we would log the well and we'd get paid. And then there was always follow-on work that we'd do on a separate, separate turnkeys, but you know, there's a lot of turnkey companies that started back in the early uh, 90s. Um, there's only really two that made it. That was ADTI and Triton. And, uh, the, the, you know, it was a, what I learned through that whole process, you had to have a very good statistical modeling thought process and to evaluate risk as well as just the whole downhole conditions of the, of the, of the wells to try to find analogs somewhere else to try to compare that to the well that you're trying to do and then steer clear of the high risk wells, you know, and, and because, you know, the high risk wells, uh, were, were unpredictable. And so if it's unpredictable, then it's not, it's, that's not a prudent, uh, turnkey. Uh, and so, 
you know, a lot of the, the companies that tried to do this just didn't understand how to risk matrix the wells that they're going to be drilling. And so they got involved in, in a, a, a well that they really didn't understand and all sorts of bad stuff happened. Yeah. I remember drilling next to, we were next to this rig out in West Texas back well, 10 years ago or so. And that well was turnkey. And I remember they were on that well for like three months. Yeah. I mean, just fishing, yeah. problem after problem. Right. And you think about it from like a business model perspective, like that's right. a terrible business. And it's great, really, it's great it, for whoever paid for it. It's who, but. It, it is great, but the, at the end of the day, um, you know, a turnkey project that is successful, you look back on that and say, "Okay, I understood what I was doing, and I followed a plan." And so, a, a big thing that I bring to IPT is, don't bring your bias some, from somewhere else in the world to a well application that's not applicable, right? And so, we have a very disciplined approach and integrity management um, program that we follow at IPT so that so that the things that we do are repeatable and are consistent. And that's what we want. We don't want for somebody to bring their thought process from the Saudi Arabia into the Bakken, right? Because the rock's different. Yeah. Right? That's one thing that I'm really thankful for my last job as a project manager with Inventure was that you know, when I first started, it was in 2014, and they told me I was going to get to go all over the world yeah. and have all the stories like you have. But then yeah. when the downturn happened, I was just fortunate to have a job at that yeah. point. But I got to go to every basin in the United States and just seeing the different things between basins, uh, which is crazy. You know, how much operations can change and that whole conditions uh, right. uh, change by, by the rock. And so that's even interbasin within you know it drilled two wells out in west texas and just because they're out in west texas doesn't mean they're applicable um, yeah. learnings and so um that's what i've always found really intriguing about drilling and completing wells is that there's just so much variance yeah there is and and so you know in between those that that consulting career you know i i i, I was a executive for Parker Drilling. That was an international drilling contractor. I was an executive for a, a equipment uh, supplier as well. Um, but what draw, drew me back uh, and, and, and the interest that I got when uh, I was uh, interviewing for the, the role at IPT was it's the, it's the unusual aspects of subsurface that I really have always thought was really um, um, interesting to me. And, you know, IPT gets in all sorts of projects because we have such a, a, a wide variety of clients. So we've gotten into solution mining with uranium. We've done potash and Truna uh, cavern mining projects. Um, We've gotten involved with municipalities in disposing uh, reverse osmosis water where they take wastewater and produce potable water, but they have a brine solution they have to do something with. We have to dispose, you know, dispose of that in a geological formation. And now we're getting involved with uh, carbon capture and storage projects, which are, you know, you know, that's that stuff has been around for a long time, you know, back back in the 30s, but you know, nobody really thought much about injecting CO2 in the, in the ground. Um, 
sometimes you did it for enhanced oil recovery. Sometimes you just did it because you wanted to do it. Yeah, that's right. What I think you know it's pretty. It's pretty funny to me. Like, there's people on Twitter that talk a lot about CO two injection storage, and I think they've been doing this for a long time. Yeah, well, we have enhanced recovery. And, we have, and I also find it funny. Like, well, like gas is like, yeah, you know, pop up hydrocarbons and then produce CO two. Like, well, inject it back down too. So it's kind of like this like closed loop circular. Yeah, <laughs> but it's just like everything else is that you know the federal government gets involved in it, and all of a sudden it becomes like super complex, mm-hmm. right? And it's really not, Um, but they have made it very complex because of their concern for contaminating groundwater. And, you know, sure, that would be bad, but, you know, there's oil and gas in in, in strategic or, or stratigraphic and structural traps, right, that have been there for, you know, Long time. Millions of years. <laughs> and so if you go into those some t- same type of formations, you know, the, the CO2 is not going to magically, you know, come up and contaminate groundwater. It's going to stay there. And really one of the, the, the uh, misconceptions is that, you know, CO2 is, is uh, injected in a gaseous form, and that's actually not, not the case. You know, yeah. CO2, uh, a supercritical CO2 uh, becomes a fluid at 88 degrees Fahrenheit and about 1,057 PSI. So, you know, structurally, from a subsurface perspective, anything below about 2,600 feet, the CO2 is in a supercritical phase. Yeah, I actually didn't think about that. I mean, just the temperature of the hole is going to liquefy, right? So, Well, the, the temperature of the hole is actually going to gasify it, but the pressure in the hole is yes. going yes. to produce a fluid. And so, you know, that's... It's kind of the same talking points with the misconception around fracking as well. You know, as long as you have mechanical integrity up the hole, you know, where you're actually injecting two miles under the surface and you've got all this rock between your reservoir and water tables. And so right. you have to think that that's plenty, bar- plenty good enough. Yeah, plenty good enough. Barrier right. To, yeah. So, absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, the CO2 carbon capture and injection is a really interesting space. And I think that there's going to be a lot of opportunity because that's something that both sides see to, to doesn't matter if you're a farm climate side or you're oil and gas operator, engineering firm, Yeah, like both sides like that solution. So yeah, it's it's, right. It's going to be, uh, you know, the, 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 Demand is there, and the interest is is there. And what we're, we're what we're seeing is that, you know, from an IPT perspective, there's a wide variety of clients that want our services. So you have you have EPC contractors that are in, interested in facilities design for the for the you know the the capture of that CO2, and they don't have the expertise downhole, so they'd like to partner with us. Or you have, you know, large service companies that need that engineering expertise for to to use their tools downhole for for uh, the uh, the subs or the carbon uh, storage, and then you just have E and P companies. You know, you have a lot of E and P executives that are now going into that space from a non E and P perspective. You know, they're doing carbon storage, but so they're bringing their full teams with them. 
But what we're finding is that they still need specific expertise, whether it's in the geological investigation or if it's in the re reservoir characterization, or if they just want some third-party, you know, gut checks on some of that evaluation, because that's a that's a big part of that permit, that that class six permit is the geological investigation and the reservoir characterization to make sure you have the right trapping mechanisms. Yeah, I'm sure those permits require third-party verification. A, a lot of them, they just want that gut check. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, the, the whole drilling aspect, which is relatively easy because these are not, you know, particularly complicated wells, mm -hmm. but they need somebody to come in there and engineer the, the, uh, the, the drilling and then executing on that. And then, it, then it's the whole MRV. So that's really a critical element, the monitoring, the reporting and the verification in the perm, you know, the, the permitting part but also in the operation part. So you have to have test wells that are validating uh, that, that, uh, that, these, uh, that these wells are actually uh, injecting CO2 and it's staying there. Yeah. yeah, not to get too much into the engineering. Yeah. Because I suppose it's not to the point of the show, but yeah, I'm curious <laughs> yeah. about, you know, on these, uh, these injection wells that are made for the purpose of CO2 storage. I mean, what, like you said, you know, they're not really complex wells because, um, you know, you're, I assume that these are just being drilled into empty reservoirs so you don't have to worry about, you know, uh, too much well control and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. But from a well design and construction, I mean, are they just really looking to get as much flow um, as possible in that and use, you know, larger uh, casing diameter? Actually, it's, it's pretty conventional designs. Um, the same type of designs that you use for producing oil and gas okay. can be used for for injecting the supercritical fluid because okay. it's a fluid, right? You're you're taking a large quantity of gas and you're 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 uh, reducing that volume into the supercritical phase. Yeah. Um, but you know the whole cementing application of that. That's you know the federal government's really interested in that, making sure your annulus is is actually keeping everything in place Indeed. where it's supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, but the drilling aspect is not really that complicated. And yeah. so when you think about, you know, uh, the reservoir, um, you know, you have a plume field that happens, right? And so this fluid, you know, goes through the reservoir and, and starts to, you know, over geological time, it, it eventually will, will, will go into, you know, some type of, residual sol solubility and then mineral trapping right? right so initially you have this phase where it's 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 liquid but over geological time you know 10 100,000 you know beyond our lifetime <laughs> right uh, it'll start to to uh, solidify within the reservoir and so the whole thought process is like we got to make sure that initially it stays in place gotcha right yeah, and I actually didn't know that, so yeah. I learned something on the show. <laughs> you know, talking about injecting, injecting's been a really hot topic out in West Texas, Oklahoma, and Denver with the seismic activity, earthquakes happening. Um, how's that affect from an engineering firm perspective? I mean, are you getting calls from EMPs that are now needing help with, uh, hey, what do we do with uh, all of this uh, produced water? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure... I've heard it from friends that there's a lot of talk behind the scenes about SWD permitting, and yeah. um, it just seems like a really seems like a, a pretty critical issue. How do y'all 
uh, think about that. So we're we're very involved in that. As I mentioned uh, earlier, we've drilled over 300 saltwater disposal wells, um, <clears throat> and and we have to work those wells over um, as well because you know you have complications that happen over time. Yeah. With injection, and yes, you know, you know, I think there's also a misconception is that fracking causes seismic. Well, it, it really doesn't. Mm-hmm. Most of the most of the seismic activities with saltwater disposal. Wells, I agree with that. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, we're certainly cognizant of that, um, and we work with our client on on those issues. So some of those wells, you know, they've decided to to plug and abandon mm-hmm. and go elsewhere. Right? Yeah. Because of that seismic activity. Yeah. So it's a it's a fluid it's a fluid thought process, but you know there's there's less no well pun yeah no pun intended, <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's it you know the thought process there is that yes saltwater disposal wells are necessary in some op- applications, but you know certainly the industry is reusing water a lot more today than they used to. As yeah, well. I was going to say recycling and reuse right. of water right. is as it should. Yeah, um, as it the, should. Yeah, right. it should get the attention. So. Um, so tell me a little bit about you coming in as CEO of IPT, um, you know, what brought you over to this company? Why did you want to take over, yeah. uh, uh, the, the role of CEO and how that, how that came to be? Sure. So, so I retired, um, for a, for a while and, and, you know, retirement allows you to, to start investigating other things. And I'm, I'm not the type of guy that, that uh, will just uh, sit idly and, and, and maybe play golf all day and, and so forth. I, I, that's just not who I am, right? So I started investigating this whole methane emissions thing from a hardware perspective, and I actually got pretty close to investing in that, in that space. But I decided that that maybe the 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 from a larger picture perspective, it's the whole certification. Once you you find this gas, is it's what do you do? How do you uh, mitigate the losses and try to stop methane emissions on different areas? And so that's how I got kind of led into IPT. And IPT certainly did not have an environmental piece to it. Um, and so they, you know, the, the guy, the investors liked the idea that, that, <clears throat> that, you know, Dave can, can expand our geographical footprint from an oil gas perspective. You know, you're going to see us open an office here in Houston later this year. We've already hired a drilling manager in the Houston area. <clears throat> we have engineers here. They're, they're home officing today or, or sometimes they're up in Golden. But we're starting to get traction here within the oil and gas space from, from our clients. And so, you know, that was one aspect of it. And the other aspect of it is, is to expand our portfolio. And, and our portfolio typically in the past has been oil and gas. And I've mentioned, you know, some other these uh, industrial um, cavern mining things that we've, we, we've done. But we've never gotten involved in environmental services. And so <clears throat> I'm in the process of constructing and, and opening a environmental consulting arm of IPT. And so that whole arm is going to be involved with methane emissions, uh, you know, carbon storage monitoring and verification. There's a whole element of that that's going to be, I think, going to be third party because you have to have some type of, you know, hands off approach where, 
you're reporting to the federal government that that's okay, and they probably don't don't want the company that's actually injecting. They're that. not going to trust you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, you. <laughs> it's and so and then then it's the whole um, you know ESG compliance reporting as well. So we're 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 expanding our portfolio and getting involved in in just different things that we've done in the past. Yeah, the um, you know when you talk about environmental environmental, it's really it's part of engineering. Right, I mean, it's not even sec- segregated. It's really I mean, not, it all, and it, it shouldn't goes, be thought that way. Yeah. You know, it, you know, there's there's a huge misperception that you know oil and gas guys just like to pollute everywhere. Yeah, but you know, I would say eighty percent of the hunters in Texas have some ha- have some um, <clears throat> tied to the oil and gas business. So we love the environment. There's a huge, there's a huge overlap between oil and gas industry and hunters. Right. And, and we love the environment and we want to protect the environment and we don't want to destroy the environment. And so to me, environmental, uh, the environmental consulting is just one more aspect of what we can provide to the industry today. Yeah. The, uh, you know, also when you look at methane leaks and mitigation, so I always tell everyone on climate side is like only gas companies are incentivized to stop methane literally your product yeah it's right you're leaking your product yeah into the atmosphere it's like the milk truck you know dripping milk on the way (laughs) to the to the store you don't want to do that exactly so it's like even you know from an economic uh perspective you're incentivized to do these things but um you know we've had some really cool technologies on the show um that just using fascinating solutions to monitor um, methane. Have technologies on the show that like use lasers that yeah. can monitor thousands of acres yeah. at at once. And then, you know, companies like Project Canary that are trying to get into certification. And then, yeah, as you highlighted, ESG accounting. Like, I don't think a lot of people that you know don't see this day to day understand that like, there's actually accounting metrics that are going to be baked into companies and how. Right. The whole element of, of methane emissions has a cost factor, right, that you've just mentioned, but it also has a pricing factor that I think is going to evolve as, as we go forward. So as companies um, are able to certify that they emit less and less and less methane, then the gas that they produce is actually worth more to the consumer. And that consumer may not be in the United States. He may be over in Europe through LNG. And, and because Europe and Canada are kind of uh, a little bit ahead of the United States in their thinking of cert- certification, but I think we're going to get there at yeah, some I've point. I've always been real curious, and I've asked a lot of people um, on previous shows over the last one to two years that if there really is a premium for certified natural gas, and it sounds like in the European market, there there may be that Europeans are willing to pay a premium for that gas. Uh, I've always, uh, on paper, it makes sense. Yeah, but I don't know if it plays out that it, way. It just depends on if the if the U.S. consumer uh, uh, validates and accepts that. Yeah, I just think they have such a long like. Look at New England. New England yeah. imports all of their LNG yeah. from. I mean, countries that have nowhere near the environmental standards that we do, despite being 200 miles away from the most prolific gas play in the world around right. Arcelis Utica. And so I'm like, you know, do seems like a long jump from 
that type of energy policy to like, oh, we'll actually pay a premium to have natural gas that's uh, certified. Now, you never know, I mean, where the world goes and how things evolve. But, uh, you know, I do think that, I think that that benefits American producers. Uh, you know, one thing, we've seen some really dumb energy policy over the last yeah. couple of years. And I remember when Shell got mandated by the court that they needed to cut their emissions by 50% by like 2030 or 2040, mm -hmm. something super aggressive. I put out a post about all that's going to happen is Shell is going to divest assets and those assets will now be owned and operated by different entities that have less strict standards. And six months after I made that post, you see Shell divest at a refinery Pimex. And right. I'm like, who would you rather have operating that refinery, yeah. Shell or Pimex? And so I think systems like that actually help you know, the, the cream rise to the top in terms of operators who are like, hey, care about your operations and you uh, care about sustainability and not leaking methane and get premium product. I think you, I think you will, but regardless, the cost side is still material. Meaning that, that what we're finding is that the majority of leaks are coming from facilities and tanks. Yeah. And those are actually relatively easy to, to mitigate the leak at that point. And, and so therefore, the, you know, look, there's all sorts of hardware out there. You know, there's, there's ground-based hardware, there's drone hardware, there's, there's airplane hardware, and there's satellite hardware. And they all have different applications. Um, and so what, what we're interested in is, is consulting with companies to help them to reduce those leaks. And whether they get, they, they improve from a cost perspective, because they're, putting more gas in that pipeline or whether they're getting a better price for it, we're indifferent to that. Yeah. We think that we're actually improving the efficiency of the marketplace. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so our customer, the E&P company is benefiting from that. Yeah. hundred percent. Agree. Yeah. Agree yeah. with that too. So yeah, it's, uh, and you really need, you know, so what, what's also interesting is there, there's a lot of data coming in. And this data is coming into E and P companies, and they're 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 looking at this data from from a SG&E expense perspective. You know, their engineers are working on this, and what you know what our selling point is is that if you bring a third party in there to look at this data and to analyze this data and to help you with that, then it's tax affected because it's on the operations side of the equation. Oh yeah, and so you know they get benefit from a tax perspective on that. Yeah, and and then it's then it's third party as well. So we're in the process of building you know out uh, a database to start helping with that thought process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know for IPT, you guys are based in Denver, and that's where you got your start. Now moving into Houston. Y'all want to continue focusing on domestic American oil and gas operations, or is it the goal to keep moving, bridging out to international market? Yeah, that's a that's a great great question. So the the answer is we're going to break out into international. You know, for example, we're working in New Zealand on a on a frac a stem engineering and, and operations project. So you know what I bring to the equation New is New Zealand. New Zealand, it's a pretty nice place to work, actually. Yeah, that's a, I was under the impression that we don't, 
we don't drill in pretty places. The, you only <laughs> yeah. get places like East New Mexico. Oh, like what's Texas, pretty cool you know? about it is that, you know, we're supposed to be, you know, doing a back-to-back -back rotation. And we had like, you know, like 10 days between projects. And so the guys over there said, oh, we'll just take a vacation in the South <laughs> Island. Yeah. And we'll come back and do it's this. Like, no, I don't want to come back. <laughs> I don't want to come back. Like, you know, Oklahoma, <laughs> New Zealand in the in the wintertime. It's like, uh, yeah, go to, go to Ardmore, Oklahoma or New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a pretty good choice. Um, but, you know, yes, we're in, we're getting involved in more projects um, internationally. And some of the larger service companies are drawing us into those projects yeah. where they need engineering expertise, especially in the Middle East area. But we've also been involved uh, with some bidding in India as well as uh, Malaysia. So, Very clear. you know, I think, you know, like we're not going to have a huge uh, operational execution team over in the international that that's complex to do, but from a, a pencil and paper perspective, we can do a lot of work in Houston and a lot of work in Denver for these, for these projects. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe go over there and present, but we, yeah. but from an execution, there's probably, you know, more body shop type, you know, consulting companies that can yeah, do that the becomes execution. much more yeah. intensive. Yeah. when you're actually executing. Right. But from we're, we're more interested in the engineering yeah. reservoir geological evaluation for those projects. Yeah. Got you. So if someone's listening to the show, and we got lots of oil and gas folks that, that listen to the podcast, obviously, and they want to learn more about IPT, and they want to connect with you, uh, where can they go to define IPT? What's the website? Are you on LinkedIn? Give, yeah. give, give us the plug yeah. where I can find you. Yeah, so um, so we're all on all of, all of the guys. The sixty plus guys are on LinkedIn. You can see my happy face there. I don't think I have as much gray hair on my <laughs> my photograph on LinkedIn. It's fun to to to, to age your photographs, right? Because they actually yeah. look better. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> but but our website, you know, we you know one of our, one of the initial things that I did when I came in is let's let's redo our website. So our website's new. So if you haven't been to our website here in the next last eight months, you'll you'll see a new website, and that's uh, iptwallsolutions.com. Awesome. So we will plug that show notes if you are interested in. Uh, catching up with IPT, go and check them out there and connect with that. He's a really cool dude. Sounds like he's been all over the world and probably has a lot more stories that we didn't get to uh, dive into today. So Dave, thanks for coming on all the right, show. All right, thanks very much. It was fun. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. It's long way that we're able to build this thing is by word of mouth. So found an essay, please share it. Share it on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, whatever you're preferred method of social media is and we'll catch you on the next show. Whoa.